Uh, welcome back to Flying Podcast. This is episode 18. Um, a week or so ago I went for my uh, class 2 medical, and my aviation medical examiner, my AME, a guy called Ian Donnan, agreed to do a podcast on what's involved in uh, getting your aviation medical. I asked Ian to run through what takes place, primarily during a class 2 medical for general aviation flying, uh, but with special mention of variations for class 1 medical, wherever that was relevant. So let's have a listen to the interview. Uh, good afternoon, Ian. Good afternoon, Steve. This afternoon we're going to be discussing uh, medical examinations for pilots, um, and you are an AME. That's right, it stands for Aviation Medical Examination, uh, Aviation Medical Examiner, otherwise known as Approved Medical Examiner, because we're approved by the CAA. Okay, before we can go flying and get our PPL or a Class 1, a class one uh, medical examination, uh, we need to come and see somebody like yourself? Yes, that's right. Um, so basically, as far as we're concerned, at us flyers, there's the Class 1, which is for professional pilots, and Class 2, which is just for general aviation, for your PPL. Um, before you can go solo, you need a medical, is that correct? Yes, in most flying schools, before you can go solo, you need three things. You need a medical, which is a Class 2. Uh, you need to pass your air law. Other of the ground exams can be left till later, and the third thing you need is a happy instructor. <laughs> and for the Class 1, the initial examination cannot be done by an AME, your local AME. It needs to be done. Yes, that's right. The, all, uh, to keep standards high in this country, all initial issues of Class 1s are done by the CAA themselves at Gatwick. Um, AMEs up and down the country, like myself, can renew Class 1s, but all initials are done at Gatwick. Uh, class 2, the initial, can be done by your local AME, like yourself? Yes, indeed. Uh, any, in, uh, all Class 2s, initial or renewal, can be done by us. Okay, so before we get started on the detail, by way of a summary, what are we looking for in the Class 2 medical? The simple way of looking at it is that uh, we're looking at the fitness to perform the task. That's the first thing. So one obviously needs to be able to move normally, one able to see normally, hear, and that, that's the first thing. Secondly, though, you need to be sure that somebody's not going to be adversely affected by the flight environment. In other words, going up in the air, changing pressure, things like this. And thirdly, just as importantly, that while up in the aviation environment, somebody's not going to be more than usually subject to or likely to collapse or be incapacitated. Obviously, we can't guarantee that 100%, but it is different in that respect. It's different from driving. If you feel unwell when you're driving, you can pull over onto the hard shoulder. There are no hard shoulders up in the air. Okay. Uh, so let's run through some of the things that actually take place during the course of an examination. I, let's say, for example, you're, you're my AME. I ring you up and say, I wish to book an appointment. Uh, I come along and... The first thing we do, let's say, is the, the ECG? No. The first thing we do, actually, is um, the, the first part of any kind of medical consultation, whether it be aviation or any other. I mean, if you just go and see your GP, the first thing that happens is taking the history. In other words, getting all the facts right. So one of the first things we do when we 
do an, a med an aviation medical is to get all the facts right first. We check that we've got your correct name, address, phone number, date of birth, occupation, etc., etc. Then we ascertain, are you aware of any medical changes, particularly for a renewal, are you aware of anything that's changed, illnesses, accidents, operations, time in hospital, since your last medical? So before we even lay a finger on you, we're actually asking questions more than anything else. Okay. Uh, and of course, if it's the first meeting, you need proof of identity? Yes. When a, when a new student comes to uh, be examined for an initial Class 2 one of the rules is we need proof of ID. The best way by far is the passport, but we are allowed to accept certain other things, particularly a photo driving licence. But it needs to be an official. I mean, a Tesco card won't do. <laughs> and whilst we're on the list of what we need to bring to the, the meeting, we'd need also a logbook or at least a list of number of hours that you've, you've flown recently or your total number of hours? Yes, information um, is requested on the form about the total hours flown and the hours since last medical, if indeed there was one. Other things to bring, anyone who wears glasses or contact lenses should bring those with them. Anyone who's taking any kind of medication should bring that with them so that you know details can be identified. And the only other thing to, to bring is a full bladder because one of the things you'll be asked to do is to produce a little specimen for testing and if you've gone five minutes before arriving it's quite awkward <laughs> right okay so once we've got the the formalities out of the way and you know that you're dealing with the person that says they're uh, mm -hmm. there um, and you have a form that you fill in online which is the CAA form isn't it and you, you actually fill that in as you go through the uh, the meeting with somebody Yes, in the old days, uh, all this was done on paper, but now, for the last five or six years, we've been part of the online system, so all the information gathering is actually done online, on my computer, and all the information goes to the CAA's own computer at Gatwick instantly. Okay. Uh, so, typically, what, what would happen once we've gone through that? What's the, the first part of the medical examination? The first part here is actually to do the vision because um, the, the vision chart is designed to be used in daylight and so therefore that's done before the, uh, the curtains are pulled. After that the curtains are pulled for everybody's um, peace of mind. Modesty. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and the only other thing in daylight is actually checking the colour vision which is done with the what's called Ishihara plates. I think most people are aware of these, the circles made up of dots in which people with normal, normal colour vision can see numbers. And you're simply asked to read the numbers out to me. OK, and you still need to be, uh, to be proficient at seeing the colours even for a Class 2 medical? Yes. Colour vision is one of the important differences between Class 1 and Class 2. If you have a significant level of colour deficiency, then a Class 1 and a commercial career may not be possible. But it is always possible to have a Class 2 for pleasure flying, even if you're colour deficient, uh, with one or two minor limitations which actually don't bother most people very much at all. For example, just flying in daytime. Well, most pleasure PPLs fly during daytime anyway. 
So if you fail the test, you may be restricted to daytime only and no night flying. Yes, that's right. And if you fail the Ishihara tests, there is also another test? Yes. If somebody's interested in a commercial career and want to take it further, the Ishihara test can tell you only that you're colour deficient. But by certain other tests, particularly lantern testing, it can be determined whether you are what the CAA call colour deficient safe or whether you're colour deficient unsafe. And on that, a commercial career could depend. And I guess the lantern test is so you can tell the difference between red and green lights at aerodromes, etc.? Those are the main ones, obviously. Um, and as I remember, we also do uh, a close-up test of vision, apart from the, uh, the letters on the wall? Yes. Uh, vision can be divided into a number of different categories. There's colour vision, as we said. There's distant vision, and that's obvious enough. You're looking out the window. You're looking for aircraft on the horizon. You're looking for your destination airfield. You're looking down the runway to make sure it's clear. All pretty obvious. But you need near vision, too. Uh, to be able to read small print on maps, to be able to look up a change of frequency in a poolies, to be able to set the little numbers on the altimeter, all fairly obvious. And different types of glasses are permitted, very focal? Yes, all sorts of glasses are permitted and indeed contact lenses. The only type of contact lenses that are not permitted yet, simply because the technology is not quite good enough yet, are bifocal contact lenses. But almost everything else that's likely to be in use is permitted uh, if need be. Okay, so we've done the eyesight test in, in daylight. What's next? We say the, uh, the curtains are shut now, are they? Yes. Actually, what happens is while I'm pulling the curtains, <laughs> I send you or whoever else is the candidate across the hall yeah. to the... Uh, there's a downstairs bathroom here. And so while I'm pulling the curtains and getting a couple of other bits and pieces ready... I ask you to go and do me a little specimen uh, for testing and then bring that back to me. Okay, and what use is this specimen? What do you do with it? Right, well, um, the main thing we're looking for, of course, is for sugar, because diabetes in any form is, uh, is a, at least a temporary bar to flying. Uh, but we also test for protein, which might give clues to kidney disease or bladder disorders, and also for the presence of blood, which again could give rise to, uh, could give clues to um, kidney disease or bladder disorders. And that's all done with like little strips of. Yes, of, like, one paper. simple little stick gives us all this information within about 30 seconds. It's amazing, isn't it? Absolutely right. amazing. When I was a medical student, to get the same amount of information would have taken two hours in a laboratory. <laughs> okay, so uh, you do that little test. Yep. Uh, in the specimen, and that gives you an immediate result, yay or nay? Yep, within about 30 seconds. And, of course, I mean, I'm pleased to say that 99.999% are perfectly normal. Okay. Ne what's next? The next thing, while I'm actually testing the specimen, the person with me is asked to remove certain items of clothing because the next thing is actually to measure and record... Uh, basic parameters such as height and weight. And they are important for what changes possibly? Well, yes, to, to monitor trends and also, of course, uh, if there's a significant 
um, disproportion between height and weight, then you start talking about being overweight and being obese, and that carries certain health risks. And, of course, being grossly obese uh, can be... Uh, oh, what's the best way of putting it? Um, uh, can make it awkward doing some of the things that are required for pilots to do, such as full... Uh, outside checking, pre-flight checking, and also even just getting into the, the seat and operating c controls. Gross obesity can be um, can mean that op controls can't be operated properly. And could you fail somebody on that, or are you sort of giving them advice that they need to slim down a little bit? The vast majority, it is just advice, but in extreme cases, um, a certificate may be in doubt. Okay, so we've done uh, height and weight then up on the table now? No, not quite. The next thing is actually to be, uh, to, to be sat down because we do uh, certain items around the head and the top end. We need to look into the eyes, shine lights in the eyes, check the eyelids, uh, check around the nose, mouth, particularly, of course, have a look in ears. Uh, as you probably remember yourself, there's a test where we uh, hold a tuning fork vibrating next to the ears. Mm -hmm. So all of that lot is most conveniently done with the person sat upright in a chair. Okay. And we're just checking for hearing. As I remember, the, the tuning fork is stuck on, on the skull at one point or it's yes. held next to the ear and you can tell from that that somebody's hearing is not deficient. Yes, actually the tuning fork is more specifically related to comparing bone conduction of sound with air conduction, uh, with a normal ear that's not blocked up with wax, air conduction should be much the more efficient. Okay. Hearing, in fact, is... Uh, some people check hearing by standing in the corner of the room and whispering things. Uh, in fact, uh, it's uh, normally, if you spend an hour with somebody and the word pardon is never, ever mentioned, <laughs> you can generally reckon yeah. hearing is okay. For class ones... Of course, a periodic audiogram, a formal test of hearing, is required. That's with like headset and different tones, so it's very precise. Exactly. Okay. All right, that's done. What, what's the next on the list? Well, after those bits around the head end that are uh, done sat down, then the next thing is actually to lie up on the couch where one's lying flat on the back, as comfortable and relaxed as possible, and all the rest is done there. Okay, are we on to an ECG now? No, not quite. There's still more to do before, <laughs> before, before we get on to that. Here, certainly, I mean, I, I can't speak for other practices, obviously, but here, certainly, the ECG is the last bit that's done. One of the reasons being that um, the longer you're lying down, uh, the more relaxed you're likely to be. And to get a good quality trace on the ECG... It is essential that you're as relaxed as you can possibly be. So once you get up on the couch there, the first thing that's done is actually to wrap a cuff round the arm and do the blood pressure, and the machine that does that also counts the pulse rate. Okay. Um, and as I remember while I was up on the, uh, the table there, we also do the... Uh tapping of the knees and scratching the bottom of the foot? Yes, all that comes into this. I mean, uh, in fact, my order of doing things is, uh, after I've done the blood pressure and that records the, the blood pressure and pulse, then I, I use the stethoscope to listen to the heart and lungs from both front and back. Uh, 
uh, with deep breaths to listen to the lung sounds. Once that's done, then there's feeling and pressing the tummy. You're looking just to make sure it's all nice and soft, no tender areas, no lumps that shouldn't be there or anything like that. Feeling for any enlarged organs, such as liver or kidneys or whatever. Checking to make sure somebody hasn't got hernias. And then we come on to doing the reflexes. Okay. The reflexes are basically we're tapping uh, with the little hammer mm -hmm. the uh, certain areas in the arms and legs, which are a test of nerve impulse transmission down the nerve fibres. A very unpopular test, I have to say, because nobody likes that being done, but also very important. And then after that, the final thing is recording the ECG. <laughs> and that, as I uh, recall, you, you have uh, little suction cups here that you sort of clasp onto the skin. How many of those are there? Right. There are, there are, for a standard ECG, as is done here, uh, there are ten wires have to be attached. Four of them are attached to one to each limb. And there, there are various types of electrodes in use uh, in different practices, but here we use a sort like clothes pegs which just clip on to the arms and legs. The ones you remember are the suction ones which, go, which are the ones which go around the chest. Six around the left side uh, of the chest where the heart is. Mm -hmm. So around the, where the heart is. And what does the ECG tell you? Right, the ECG, in very simple terms, the ECG is um, a record in this case, on a sheet of paper of the electrical activity of the heart. We listen with a stethoscope to the mechanical activity of the heart, so we hear the valves working and we hear the blood flowing through the heart and we can hear murmurs if there's any, anything untoward with the blood flow or the valve action. But the ECG records the electrical activity of the heart, which you couldn't tell any other way. It gives us information about the regularity, because most hearts should beat very regularly. But the pattern, the shape of the trace, also gives us information about the health and well-being of the heart muscle itself. So that if, for example, in cases of angina, the heart muscle is being deprived of oxygen, um, because of coronary artery narrowing, the shape of the trace may be significantly altered. And similarly, in certain cardiac conditions, the, the heart may beat very irregularly, and that too, obviously, would show up on the trace. I guess you could actually find problems that people are unaware of? Oh, absolutely. The vast majority of the problems that crop up with ECGs, people are unaware of. If people are aware of symptoms which might be caused by heart disease, the chances are they wouldn't be here for a routine medical. They would have gone to their own GP or the hospital. So the problems that we pick up are people are ones which occur in people without symptoms. Yeah. And I guess, as with all the other tests, even if somebody fails, it's not necessarily going to stop them from flying. You can just refer them on for further tests, and if they come back okay, you can fly. Yes, that's indeed the case. I suppose most AMEs will come, up, come across 
things which need further investigation. In, in this practice, the frequency might be two or three times a month. But the number of times when you find something where somebody is never, ever going to fly again, thankfully, is very rare. Mm -hmm. Maybe once a year, maybe. It does happen, but not very often. The vast majority will need a bit more investigation, maybe start some treatment. For example, if you find the blood pressure is high, get it under control with treatment, and they're back to normal. And from what I've read, as, even if you have a problem, as long as it can be controlled by recommended medicines, that's really sort of the watchword, isn't it, for allowing you to fly? For the most part, yes, that's true. There are cert certain types of medical treatments which, are, which actually become a bar to flying. Um, probably the best... There are two which one should mention perhaps at this point. Uh, probably the, one of the best known would be diabetes if the treatment, if it's so severe that the treatment needs to be insulin, mm -hmm. that is a bar to all types of flying license. The other is any kind of psychiatric disorder that needs any treatment with drugs which affect the mental state. In other words, tranquilizers, uh, sleeping tablets, anti-anxiety pills, this sort of thing. In this country, uh, those are an absolute bar to any kind of flying license. So after the ECG, what comes next to you? Right, the only other bits that are then required are to measure the uh, peak flow, which is actually the fast, how fast you can blow air in and out of the lungs, and that's measured with a little device where you blow a needle as far as you can. And finally, a little pinprick in the finger to get a little drop of blood, and what we're actually measuring is haemoglobin, which is the pigment which makes the blood red and relevant, of course, in aviation because it's haemoglobin that carries oxygen around the body. Of course, as we are likely to get um, strange things happening to us if we go to altitude, the ability of the blood to carry oxygen is very important. It's absolutely fundamental to anyone involved in aviation. Obviously, the, the larger jets in commercial aviation go way above uh, levels that are safe, but of course they're pressurised. Uh, any people that suffer from uh, low levels of haemoglobin? Yeah, this is one of the yes, this is one of the reasons. Uh, so people who, for example, are anemic, or who have chronic bronchitis, anything which diminishes the ability of the body to carry oxygen around, and of course, in this context, smokers are um, uh, not uh, not good either. So that's something very much to be discouraged in pilots as well as everybody else. And we do this blood test at, at every examination? Yes, it's required, it's legally required at every class one. In fact, in this practice, I do it on class twos as well because it's so simple, it only takes a matter of seconds. Yeah. And I think that it's good information to be able to tell people, uh, there you are, that's normal, nice to know you are not anemic. Something that uh, occurred to me a few years ago when I was thinking of having laser eye surgery and, and I was speaking to one of the, uh, the guys down at the airport and he said, just don't have it done. What, what's your opinion and, and how does that affect examination? Right, this is something that's changed dramatically over the years. When I was first in AME, um, eye surgery for short sight and so on simply didn't exist. Mm -hmm. 
Then came the cutting type of operations, and occasionally people had those, but they were sort of off flying for a year or two at a time. Now we've got laser surgery, which is becoming more advanced all the time, and the rules are changing to follow this. And the present situation is that, yes, people can fly after laser surgery so long as the result has been good and so long as there are no unacceptable side effects, you know, such as glare and um, uh, night problems. And nowadays, the period for which you're grounded on having laser surgery is down to as little as three months. Uh, we need information about the pre-op condition of the eyes and how the operation's been done and information about follow-up. But laser surgery in pilots is here to stay. Okay. Uh, Frequency of medicals in terms of the class two. Um, prior to my 50th birthday, it was biannual, as in yes. every other year. Yes. Now, past 50, it is every year. Yes. Does it ever go up after that? Is it, uh, does it ever become every six months? No. Uh, again, uh, same, same as the last uh, thing we talked about. When I first became an AME, which is, I hate to say this, but... Uh, 24 years ago, uh, yes, in those days, if a private pilot still wanted to be flying, once he got beyond 70, the medicals, believe it or not, came down to every six months. Mm -hmm. But in fact, that was abandoned a number of years ago, so it never gets any more than 12 monthly for private pilots. In those under 40, it's every five years. Between 40 and 50, it's every two years, and over 50, as you said, it's annual, but it never gets any more than that. Class 1s, professional pilots, um, under the age of 40, are uh, annual. Over 40, it becomes six monthly if they're carrying commercially fair-paying passengers on a single pilot basis, otherwise it remains annual, and then over 60, it becomes six monthly. Right. Okay, well, I think that's it. Thank you very much, Ian. My pleasure. Uh, nice to talk to you. So that's it for episode 18. Thanks again to Ian for the interview. If any of you out there have a question for Ian regarding aviation medicals, um, please send it to me uh, on an email. Uh, I should point out that Ian can't give specific advice to people that aren't his clients, but uh, he's happy to answer general questions. So if there's something you'd like clearing up or that you're not sure about, drop me a line on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk uh, and I'll ask Ian to, uh, to answer those questions if possible. We've only covered a general sort of summary of what's involved in an aviation medical today uh, in this interview. If you'd like more detail, a definitive list of the rules and regulations, or indeed a list of aviation medical examiners in your area, you should, of course, visit the CAA website. Their contact details will be in the show notes on the Flying Podcast website at www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. Well, as I say, that's it for episode 18. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them in. Um, you can email me, as I said before, on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and I'll speak to you again soon.